Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan, a team dedicated to building uniquely close relationships with all clients, including individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and generations of family members seeking legal advice. Online at bestlaw.com. Best and Flanagan, lawyers you know. What we're doing is actually having implications on traditional agencies that have been doing things a certain way for a really long time. And now we're disrupting that. So we really wanted to, to double down on exploring what we could build and do for ourselves rather than what we could contribute to an ad agency. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine, coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, cultivating the next generation of problem solvers and innovators. The school offers undergraduate and graduate programs in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, as well as community resources to support new ventures, family businesses, and corporate entrepreneurs. And now, by all means. Hard to believe, but just a little over a decade ago, the job that Emily Pritchard does today didn't even exist. Emily is the founder and CEO of The Socialites, a fast-growing Minneapolis agency that specializes in social strategy, content creation, engagement, optimization, fundamentally building an online community for big brands like General Mills, Pentair, Cargill, and Polaris. In just the past year, The Socialites has grown its revenue by 87% and its staff by 70%. Keep in mind, Emily's never had a boss. The Socialites was an idea she and a partner came up with in an entrepreneurship class at the University of St. Thomas. The year was 2011, and her friends were active on Facebook and Twitter, but businesses weren't by and large, and Emily thought there could be an opportunity to help them connect with consumers. Boy, was she right. Hard to imagine any business today not having some sort of social media presence. Emily shares some advice for how to show up and where, and she does so with the perspective of someone who grew up in a family business. I grew up in a very small rural town in Iowa. Okay. Farm, farm town. Um, I was not, I never grew up on a farm, mm -hmm. um, but we grew up on an acre of land on the edge of town, and I grew up in a family business. Mm. So we were constantly at the dinner table. My parents worked together. It's a 108-year-old business. So what kind of business? It's in the auto industry. It's an auto automotive uh, enterprise. Okay. And so you heard about the business. Your parents were always yeah. We were working. we were what we would call like a business family. Mm -hmm. You know, at the dinner table, we'd ask what the best part of your day was, and we would constantly be in the showrooms at the dealerships, running around talking to all the sales guys. I feel like I got an early start as a salesperson selling Girl Scout cookies to the salespeople. Okay. Um, and uh, did you work for the business too? Yeah, you do the odds and ends jobs, you know, like growing up in a family business is a little different than most people um, would imagine. You know, I mowed the dealership lots. <laughs> I washed the cars for a summer. I would go home over Christmas break and instead of just hanging out, you know, we would run around to all the um, dealerships and we would do inventory because it's the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And those were some of the, the jobs that we took on. And that was just sort of understood. Stages. In your family, that it was you understood. You're things? part of the family. Everybody helps out. Everybody contributes. Yeah. I never saw it as a burden. I always saw it as just what we do. Mm -hmm. That's how we operate as a family. We all pitch in. 
Did you think after school you would go back and work on the business? It's funny you ask that. So when I decided to go to St. Thomas, I was particularly interested in the entrepreneurship program Mm -hmm. because I'd always been an ideas person, not necessarily like having an idea to start a business, but just curious about what if we built something like this or, hey, I see a new opportunity over here. So I really wanted to sharpen those skills of how to write a business plan around that. Um, Part of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship is the Family Business Center. So I was actually the first graduate with a concentration in family business as part of my entrepreneurship degree. And the ironic part of that is my capstone course for that. We decided as a family that you couldn't join the family business for two years after you graduated from college. Mm -hmm which was when I ended up starting The Socialites. So in a way, we decided as a family it was important to get outside experience Mm -hmm. before you discerned whether or not you wanted to join the family business or not. Are they kind of kicking themselves about that clause (laughs) now because now maybe they've lost the chance to get you back? Oh, yes. Uh, My dad always kind of says it, you know, with just like a little shake of his head of, (laughs) yeah, we did that class and here we are. Yeah, not going back to Iowa. I'm not going back to Iowa. (laughs) So there you are at St. Thomas. You're in this entrepreneurship program. And I always wonder about people who kind of self-identify as entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs. What is the pressure like to be coming up with an idea? Because you literally need an idea for your classes, right? Yeah. I mean, so if you rewind, this is going to age me like 15 years Mm -hmm. is when I was a sophomore in college and deciding what my major is going to be. That doesn't age you. Come on. (laughs) Actually, at the time, entrepreneurship was not as hyped as it is today. And most people didn't want you to become an entrepreneurship major because they said, you'll never get a job. Mm. No one wants to hire someone who wants to run their own business someday. Mm -hmm. But I saw it as an opportunity to learn a little bit about a lot of aspects of business Mm -hmm. and use that to my advantage someday. Maybe I had an idea or maybe I didn't, but I knew that I had that skill set in that toolbox to do it if I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't necessarily go in with the intent of having a big idea, but part of the program is teaching you how to see opportunities and how to do the market research and build a plan and, um, you know, capitalize on that opportunity Mm -hmm. to see if there really is a business behind it. So we were constantly pitching business plan competitions. I was part of a group called Practicing Entrepreneurs, which met over convo hour on Thursdays. And it was a bunch of people you've had on your podcast before, really? like you know, who? as students, like Alex French, mm-hmm. a busy um, coffee, a busy coffee and Dajan. Um, and our professors would constantly hot wash our ideas. They would push us to think about them in a new way. And as peers, we would think about who would be the right person to build this company with. So it was really good practice when mm-hmm. you have nothing to lose when you're in college, of just pitching ideas, having people push back on them or get excited about them and seeing what worked. And eventually you get to the one that's made for you. Do you remember the earliest inkling of what is now the socialites? Yeah, I was doing an internship at the time with Manny Villafana, another one of your podcast guests. Yeah. And trying to pitch him on the idea that social media can be a really effective tool for communicating your message to people, whether Uh that's investors, your stakeholders, the market at large, or creating a community 
around the people that you want to reach. Did, did Manny just say, forget about it? <laughs> you sound a lot like him. Uh, he, he was very skeptical of the idea. Mm-hmm. And I will say that one of my greatest moments of pride was in changing that and reframing that and getting mm-hmm. him to buy into the new narrative that this really is the future. These technology platforms are where the consumers are. It's always been consumer driven. And as someone who, you know, I didn't grow up with a cell phone. I got a cell phone in high school. Mm -hmm. But seeing in college how my friends and my peers were getting information, influencing each other on where we're going out at night and what we're buying, it was really driven by the consumer. And we knew that businesses needed to catch up. Mm-hmm. Businesses needed to be there if they were going to evolve with the consumer. So those are the early stages of seeing, oh, there's an opportunity here. And a lot of the things that probably would work against me and other businesses, such as lack of experience, my age, um, I know nothing about advertising, I've never worked in this industry before, actually work to my advantage because of how disruptive social media sure. is as a discipline to both marketing and advertising. And just the consumer brand relationship. So those are the early indicators that we brought into this capstone project for entrepreneurship. Like something's here and we really want to explore what this could mean in terms of building a business around helping, helping businesses connect with their consumer in new and innovative ways. Was that um, was it common for that project to be doing a, a service oriented business? I and mean, we've talked to like busy coffee. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a coffee <laughs> product. Love your melon. It's a beanie. You know, yes. I mean, what about you were talking about more of a consulting business? Yeah, actually, that was one of the biggest lessons I learned is in our pitch competition, you have a room full of investors. And you've practiced this pitch, you've done the work, you're in front of the room, and you're asking them to invest in you Mm -hmm. and to invest in your business. And everyone loved the business. We had our first client at that time. We were actually operating like we were a real business. Mm. And they all passed on investing. And we didn't even place in the business plan competition. And we were heartbroken at the time. But, you know, we never did learn in school about professional services. Because it was a model that's been around for a long time, it's, you know, billable hours and utilization rates and things that were completely new to me when I started this business and never taught to me in school. Hmm. So it was a, an aha moment of, oh, I see. I'm in a business where I have to go out and actually, you know, kill what I eat. <laughs> like, no one's going to invest in a professional services company today. So uh-huh. in order for us to exist as a business... We actually have to go and hustle and and get real clients to pay us for what our services that we're providing. This isn't widgets and right. Yeah, and, and maybe in some ways that's that that was kind of the biggest gift you had was that you had to figure out how to make it work. Yeah, I mean, when you're 22 years old and you're graduating, you don't really know what the real world is yet. You've still lived in a bubble. And that actually worked to our advantage. You know, we had nothing to lose at the time. And we didn't live these extravagant lifestyles where we needed to fund them. So for us, you know, we were on a budget. We were super scrappy in those early days. We decided instead of, you know, doing the socialites as a side hustle and going and getting a job to fund our lives, that we would do the opposite. We would work on the socialites during the day. And then we would waitress. I had three waitressing jobs and was a nanny on nights and weekends. Really? To fund, you know, basically my rent, 
my gas, and my food. Okay. Did you get much confirmation while you were still in school and while you were working on the socialites as a project? I mean, obviously, you, you had a client, so, mm-hmm. so that tells you, okay, someone will pay for these services. Were your professors encouraging? Did you have other signs that, like, wow, this could be an agency? Everybody was very encouraging. I think, you know, we had really built our reputations, like, we're going to do this. We're determined. Mm-hmm. We did, you know, to get that first client took a lot of persistence and convincing them, no, no, we're not just college students. We're, we actually want to do this as a real business. Who was it? What kind of, I mean, if you don't want to name names, but I mean, what kind oh, of? Oh, no, we love naming it. It's Tiffany's Sports Lounge. Okay. Yeah, it was the, the local college bar. Uh-huh. Tiff's was known for their Thursday night parties. Yeah. But there was always a little competition with plums in the neighborhood. And what we realized was the way that students at the time found out about where people were going on Thursday, is it TIFFs or is it Plums, was through Facebook events. Mm. So what we did is we partnered with TIFFs to run themed events. There's a shuttle that runs between campus and the bar. And we used Facebook as a tool to let people know what was happening. They saw all their friends were going to this night out. And it really influenced them to make that call, to make Hmm. that decision. Smart. And we were able to help them kind of salvage this Thursday night that had been historical for students forever. And then they started to shift away from it. And we we brought it back. Wow. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a moment where you thought maybe I could do this whole, you know, social media management or consulting for maybe I should go to an ad agency or a marketing firm or go work for someone bigger and bring your expertise? In those early days, I was very curious about ad agencies. I'd never been in one. I didn't study advertising. And so I really, I was clueless. I had no idea how to even go about that process. But we did have exposure to some ad agencies in the early days that were curious what we were doing and what social media was. I think a lot of them thought at the time it was a fad, it was for, you know, the millennials, the young people, and it would go away or wouldn't impact their their brands as much. But what we started to notice is if we got too entrenched in the ad agency as we were building the socialites, we were going to um, kind of lose our own exposure as a brand. Like they would absorb us into their organization and white label our services. So it's really important for us to understand For me, anyway, at that moment, it was, oh, wait a second. What we're doing is actually having implications on traditional agencies that have been doing things a certain way for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And now we're disrupting that. Yeah. So we really wanted to, to double down on exploring what we could build and do for ourselves rather than what we could contribute to an ad agency. It's amazing to think how things have changed. I mean, this was like 2010 or so you started. The, you 2011, started, okay. 2012. Yep. Okay. And I mean, at that point, I mean, well, today, every agency has a social media team. Companies have social media managers. None of that existed. No. And actually, at the time, the new term that was cropping up was called a community manager. Mm-hmm. And the early thought leaders in the space that I found on Twitter because I'm doing research, what is going on? Like, what do we call ourselves? What is the service that we're actually providing? Mm -hmm. Was community management and community referring to the online communities like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram that you were building and engaging with over time. And that's now evolved because social media has evolved so much. But 
there were a lot of questions around who is this community manager and what should they do? And it's always been a bit of a unicorn role in that in traditional agencies, you have specific departments, you know, your creative or your account. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's different hierarchies of how you advance in your careers. When it came to social media, it's a, it was a free-for-all. It was the Wild West. Well, some days we have to make creative, and some days we have to engage with our communities, and the next day we're an analyst and we're doing reporting. So it was this unicorn role that no one really knew, what do we do with this thing? Mm-hmm. But because we were 100% focused on supporting and defining what that role could be and the potential that role had to contribute to brand building, I think made us really effective in those early days to say, whoa, this is more than just tacking on social media as another service offering, under social media as a service offering, there's so many different elements that come to play and services we can provide, channels that we support, types of content even that mm-hmm. we need to learn how to create. How did, what, Talk about some of the early steps as you were setting this up. I mean, how did you figure out what to charge? How did you figure out what your menu of service offerings were? How did you communicate with companies that, that you, you're having to convince them to do this? They don't even know what you are yeah, or I why mean, they need you. We, we had no clue what we were doing, but we knew that we could figure it out. And so at the very you know onset of it, it was, well, what do we do? What are we going to offer? And to start to put language around that into a proposal. And then once they bought it, it was like, uh-oh, Now we got to do the thing. Mm -hmm. And again, there is no blueprint. There's no roadmap of how this is done before. We didn't roll out of agencies where we had been trained. Did you go? Was there anyone you went to for advice? I'll actually never forget one of our earliest meetings. We were scared to death to go to this meeting was with Kieran Foliard. Oh, yeah. And we had cold pitched him. He has a St. Thomas affiliation. And we read a the newspaper article where he was leaving the um, Care Irish pubs to start this new whiskey company. And in it, he talked about wanting to be innovative and do things differently and align with the new audience. And we're basically like, we're your, we're your people. Yeah. Like, we're doing the same thing in a different industry. And he took the meeting with us and all of the things you're talking about of what do we do and how do we sell it and how do we charge for it? We had no clue going into that meeting. But when we sat across the table from Kieran... And we were telling him why we started our business. He looked at us and he pointed on the table and he said, I'm going to help put you guys on the map. Mm. And him, there's so many I could go on and on about all of the different mentors we've had along the way have helped us put those things in place. They've essentially trained us into this industry of what, you know, what do bill rate cards look like and what do um, companies expect us to have in terms of certifications and insurance? and service delivery and the quality of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So it's really taken, you know, a lot of inputs from how do I run a business? How do I run an ad agency? How do we create a new discipline that has never existed before? Mm -hmm. And finding people who have done that and have previous experience. And one thing I love about our Minnesota Uh, entrepreneurial community and ad community is how open and generous people are Mm -hmm. with sharing that information and wanting to help the next generation see their ideas through, but also not necessarily make the the same mistakes that they've made. And I've had incredible mentors along the way. I wonder at first if they were supportive because you weren't really, you didn't 
what you were doing was different and it didn't seem like competition. Once all these bigger agencies realized, uh oh, we better be offering these services too, did it change? Yeah, there were moments where we were sitting in the room. And once an agency thought they knew what we did and how we could do it, all of a sudden we stopped getting the calls from that agency. Mm. We were like, uh-oh, yeah. this means they're trying to do it themselves. But we, we never let that discourage us or intimidate us. I think, you know, there's enough work to go around. There's plenty of advertising and marketing dollars at companies to be shared. Mm-hmm. I think what we were more motivated by was the opportunity to continue building something so different and so unique in the market that wasn't just a tack on. Mm -hmm. We've dedicated our careers to building something that is, is disrupting what they've done traditionally. And I think now, you know, fast forward through those kind of stages of are we in competition with each other? A lot of those agencies have said, you know, We will do social media to a degree, but we're not the specialist. Mm -hmm. And they will pass along referrals to us. They will gladly make introductions to us because what we do and the way we do it is so unique to building the next generation of social media professionals and marketers that it's more than just, you know, putting an ad on Facebook. It's we're building a career path for somebody. We're training them how to do it. We're actually defining what the work looks like, delivering against it, and showing the results of that. And most ad agencies are happy to pass all of that work along to us yeah. and focus on what they do best. Sure, sure. Um, give an example of a campaign, a project, a brand you've worked with that you're like especially proud of, where you've really kind of moved the needle one way or the other. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, hmm. I mean, in the in the early stages, I would say Two Gingers was probably one of the most proud moments we've had as a company because they were early stage. And through the two years of our partnership, we helped them not only grow their communities in Minneapolis and St. Paul and the state of Minnesota, but we actually helped them grow their partnership with the twins and Target Field. Eventually, they were acquired. We worked with their other agencies to help them roll out nationally. So for us, that was something that took our own brand along on a journey to go from a very hyper-local brand to a national brand that now a lot of people know by name today. Mm -hmm. And having that type of, I would say, belief in our business in those early days and the ability to use that case study and to go to the next client and say, look at the value we're providing here and mm-hmm. go there was really important. What was the what was the magic in what you did for Two Gingers? Did you pick a platform where you knew it would do the best? Were you everywhere? Was it the the kind of, you know, the way you were communicating about it? What was it? They identified early on that they were a whiskey brand for a different type of consumer, which was the whiskey women love. Mm -hmm. And so we cultivated that community on social and we helped them create different cocktails and different ways that people could engage with the brand by introducing them to it in a new and a really fun way. You know, the big ginger was the drink at the time that they trademarked. And it, it was just a fun way to rally people around the idea of. Getting behind brands that meant something more than just a consumer project, a Mm -hmm. transaction. 
And I think that was the magic behind building community, engaging them in ways, surprising and delighting them in ways that had, they had never really experienced from a brand before. Hmm. How did you as a company make the transition to working with big enterprise, big Fortune 500s? Was there a, 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 a moment that stands out? There was a moment, yes. So in those early days, I had mentioned two gingers earlier, that was our biggest local case study. We were so proud. And so we attended a conference that summer to kind of, you know, tell people what we were doing. We had this case study to share. And we sat next to a team that had flown in for this conference who worked with some of the auto manufacturers in Detroit. That's where they were based. And they were like, hey, we were working with Ford Motor Company. Um, I'm from an auto family. So yeah. I'm like, woo, I love this. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. And they were introducing the C-Max to the market. And the C-Max was the first um, hybrid competitor to the Toyota Prius. Mm. And they were sending these on a road show. And they wanted me and my business partner to go on the road show. And at this point, we had a handful of clients who were like, hey, this is a great opportunity. But like, we had a business to run. Yeah. So it was the first time that we found contractors. We trained them into being community managers and we sent them on this road tour. And it turned out to be two or three years of road tours. Wow. And that you personally went on? I would go on and off the tours, okay. but we would have boots on the ground actually going on as the the kind of real-time community managers that would report back into headquarters here. Okay. But getting that experience under our belt was, wow, okay, we can actually scale ourselves. We can mm. document what we do. We can train other people. And here we have this huge brand behind us now. Mm -hmm. We should do something with it. And that got our foot in the door to a local pitch. We'd never pitched a business. We got an RFP. We're like, what does that mean? Yeah, what, what's that? <laughs> We're like emailing everybody we know. How do we do Google this? Google RFP. Do? Yes. Oh, man. I think we did like two years of business development work in two months uh -huh. to complete this RFP. We made it to the finals. I'll never forget on Valentine's Day, they came to our office and they told us we didn't get it. Oh. Ugh. Heartthrob. They came in uh, person to tell you that? Yeah. And you know, I will admit, I shed a tear in the, the stairwell. Yeah. But two days later, with the plan that we had created for this company, we had developed a community manager training program. And we're like, you know what? We're going to do it anyway because we're going to need people to grow our business. Mm -hmm. And so we launched this community manager training program. And guess what? Knock, knock, knock. Uh, well, actually, they picked up the phone and called us. <laughs> General Mills. Uh-huh was really curious, what are you doing? Because we're trying to build our social department. We have a handful of people here, but we need more support. I mean, they've got global brands, mm -hmm. you know, 30 plus. And they came in and they partnered with us on that community manager training program. And that was the moment that I feel like we became a real company. Mm. Do you still work with them? We still work with them a decade later very proud of the way that they've been our partner. There's been a lot of change in the last decade for both General Mills and for the socialites and just in our world. And to have them believe in us in those early days as a team of three people at the time and to now be a team of 43 people and continuing to serve some of the world's most influential brands in their portfolio has been really meaningful to yeah, our team. I bet. 
What does social media management look like in 2022 and how do you future-proof an ever-changing business? We'll discuss right after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan. Understand, identify, manage, protect, and realize the value of your intellectual property and other business assets. Expect a customized approach from Best and Flanagan with legal advice carefully tailored to protect your interest within the context of your overall business strategy, goals, and vision. Best and Flanagan, a legal team dedicated to understanding where you want to go and helping you get there. Local advocacy and advice from lawyers you know. Online at bestlaw.com. Well, you can't lead a business today without thinking about how you show up on social. Emily offers some advice. When a a company or brand comes to you today and says, "Okay, you know, we got to figure out social, where do you begin? What, What are the key questions that you ask to put together a plan? It always ties back to your goals and objectives. Why? Why are we doing this? Why why are we thinking about social? Where does this tie into your business goals? Where does it tie into the, your marketing objectives? And why social and where should we be? A lot of times that starts with their consumer and understanding their audiences. So who are they? Where do they currently gather? Are they the audience that we want to continue going after? Are we trying to expand who we're talking to? And where, where do they live on the internet? Mm-hmm. We live on the internet every day. Where's your favorite place to live on the internet, you personally? I personally love Instagram still. Mm-hmm. I'm, I love to travel. And so Instagram for me is where I discover a lot of new places and things to do. I connect with people that I travel with. Mm-hmm. So it's both a, you know, friends and family, but also kind of has become a global community for me to stay in, in touch with. Hmm. But yeah. Are you everywhere, though? I mean, are you on TikTok and Twitter and Facebook? It's funny. I am. But you would be surprised that I really I have a very light social presence. I don't consider myself an influencer. I'm not I don't have a, a, a strategy, I guess you could say, of how I engage on social. That's not where my focus area has been. That's so interesting because in a way, couldn't you be like your own best calling card if you built up your own personal following? You definitely could be. And, you know, it is a tension point, right? Of I should do this or I could do this. Is that what I want to do? And is that really what it comes back to me? Is that the role I play in the value that I provide to the company? Mm. And for me, right now at the phase that we're in, that hasn't been the priority. Now, will that shift? Will that change? It certainly could mm-hmm. over time. And maybe I'll have a, a, an appetite for it. But right now, where I get a lot of energy and motivation is in, in continuing to build the business and continuing yeah. to build the team and meet with our clients and understand, like, where are they going and how do we help them get there? And What's, going, what's around the corner and where should we be thinking about in the future? And that's really where I, I add the most value to the business. I'm an entrepreneur at heart yeah. and a business operator. And that's how I've really grown my skills over the last 11 years is in building the business mm-hmm. and being a little bit more behind the scenes of the business and less about me. It's never really been about right. that, about my brand. It's been about us. It's been about the team. It's been about our clients. It's been about really the impact that we're having in our industry and the legacy that we want to leave in being an early mover 
and a pioneer in the space and always a catalyst for like what's next and what's coming. Mm -hmm. So how far into this were you when you dropped the evening waitressing jobs (laughs) and when you said, "Okay, I think we really have something here? You know, it was actually only about three months in. It was the summer after we graduated. I'll never forget it. So we were taking the shuttle from the St. Thomas, St. Paul campus to the Minneapolis campus. And, you know, you pull a lot of long days and late nights. And uh, I looked at my my business partner at the time and was like, you know what? We're both really smart and we can go get jobs. What we're doing right now isn't sustainable. So what if we gave this a shot full time, put all of our energy here, like what would shift in the business? We had, we're already giving all of our days mm-hmm. to the business, but just having those free spaces back in our lives to not be working and not be doing, but to be thinking about the future differently. And that was a really critical moment where it was, hey, we're going to give this till the end of the year. And if we're not able to pay ourselves minimal salaries to cover you know, rent, food, gas, yeah. then, then we should do something else. And then things just started falling into place and one client led to the next and we were able to to make it work. Hmm. Um, Have you had any outside money to date or is it all just self-sustaining? 100 percent self-funded. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. You've you've been using we and I know today you have a a robust uh, staff of 43 and you've made a lot of hires. Um, You did start with a partner who was a classmate Mm -hmm. of yours. Um, What was that like and how did that come to an end? Yeah, I think starting the business and pitching these business competitions together with my business partner was so fun. The early days are, there's nothing like them. Part of it is your naivete of like, what's coming? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really fun to get the business started out of college and to have all the encouragement of our families, our friends, our investors, our early clients. And then sometimes, you know, fast forward seven years later, you wake up one day and you're like, whoa, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, you're employing people, you're running into challenges, Mm -hmm. the economy's shifting, your clients have new needs, you've been always on for seven years. And those were really important conversations to have with each other to say, is this business serving us the way that we want it to? We had an amazing idea. We had an incredible opportunity. And look at everything that we've done up until this point. What do we want our futures to hold? What Mm. do we want the future to look like? And if it's different, then what's best for the business and what's best for each other? Mm -hmm. And so for us, that meant that we needed to transition. And my business partner exited the company to start another company. And I carried the socialites forward. And it's been three years now since that transition. And I'm just really proud of us for the way that we handled a really tough phase um, in our relationship, a really tough phase in a business that needed to keep going. But also just with the grace and empathy that this is this is the right thing to do. And looking back now and looking at the last three years for both of us, I can say it was the right thing. And like to get your, you know, to get your happiness back and to get your fulfillment back at what you're doing is something that I think every entrepreneur goes through moments of, you know, is this worth it? Is this what I'm meant to be doing? Is this the path I'm supposed to be on? And so 
the fact that we were still, you know, in our 20s yeah. and able to navigate those conversations is something that I'll always look back on and just have a lot of, um, yeah, just just have a lot of good feelings about the way that we yeah. transitioned through that. What is it like for you as a leader to go from having that, you know, it can be lonely at the top and you mm-hmm. had that partner and co-founder and you're kind of in it together to all of a sudden it's just you. You're the sole owner. You're the CEO. How did that feel? Yeah. Again, no idea what that was going to be like. <laughs> and to give you some, a, a time stamp, because I think that's really important as we think about the last three years. Mm-hmm. This was November of 2019. Mm -hmm. So taking on a business as a sole owner and figuring out where do we go next? What is our North Star? What is the next evolution of this company? How am I going to do this? Mm -hmm. Um, We were 12 people at the time. We were small. In 2019, you were 12 12 people. 12 people. Wow. Yeah. And today you're 43. And we're 43 today. But to really get that process going, I'm really big on Gathering as a company, hosting retreats, thinking about vision, mission, values. Why are we here? What is our purpose? I entered that next phase with a lot of openness to feedback from our team, to looking at the future differently. And as we were on our way, boom, COVID. Yeah. And there is a silver lining for COVID. And for me, it gave me the focus that I needed to get through that transitional period, as well as the the physical space away from the team to see the business from a new perspective hmm. and to see, wow, this is actually working really well as a company and to see the glaring aspects that that weren't working for us at the time. And so during, you know, COVID and this transition, it was really important for me to just hold a lot of appreciation for the the moment that we were in, mm-hmm. but to stay focused on building for the future, to stay focused on like the best is yet to come for us. And the greatest thing about COVID was 16 years of social media adoption in 16 months. So what we had been working for, for a decade mm-hmm. of going into companies and telling them this is changing the way that consumers are connecting and communicating, not all of them necessarily believed that. Even, even in 2018, Even in 2018 and 2019, they, yeah. didn't, they weren't feeling, I think, the financial impact yet mm-hmm. of what that meant for their business because their consumers were aging out, but they hadn't aged out. Mm-hmm. And the new consumers, millennials and Gen Z, were just coming into buying power. Mm-hmm. Now... Uh, it's completely different. Everybody, your grandmother, your mother is on Zoom, is on Instagram, has probably purchased something mm-hmm. from a social platform. That's powerful for right. a brand. So now that we have 10 years of experience doing this, when we meet with companies, they're ready. Sure. You they're ready have, to go. You no longer have to convince them. It's a different it's, conversation that yeah. we're having. And also, Now there's a lot of new entrants into our space. Now everybody wants to be in social, Mm. but they don't necessarily have the experience or the perspective we have on our industry of having seen it evolve so much over the last 10 years. Yeah. And in addition to what we do, the how we do it is so important. Really grooming the next generation of social media professionals who will be the future CMOs. Hmm. So what happened in the early days of the pandemic? I mean, it, I, 
I know from our business in media, I mean, you know, marketing is always the first thing to get slashed, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's scared. Everything comes to a halt. Everyone pulls back on on marketing spends. And then it became clear, wow, we better keep communicating. We got to keep talking. Everybody's sitting at home. This is actually a huge opportunity. Did, Did you have that kind of roller coaster experience? I think, you know, as a business going through that, we mainly work with the enterprise, so mm-hmm. Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. And because of those relationships and how stable those businesses were through the pandemic, we work in a variety of industries. For us, it was more of a shift of how they were going to spend the dollars rather than a reduction mm. of dollars. We spent a lot of time doing social listening. Now that people couldn't go anywhere, they were going online to connect and talk to each other. There was a ton of gold that we could mine for our clients on how people were feeling, how they were emotionally connecting to each other, but also to their brands in new and interesting ways. Interesting. So for us, it was it was a shift and also a a force forward. Mm-hmm. Um, we we doubled, you know, we've been doubling year over year for the past couple of years. I think because of this new new appreciation and need. For this isn't a, we can do it if we want to. This is a must have now. This is part of how people are are making decisions. And social has kind of moved from the back of the deck mm-hmm. to the center of the marketing plan. It's where we start by understanding people. And it's where we end by pushing out messages, promotions, campaigns. Sure. I think one of the things that so many businesses just kind of like struggle to keep up with and it's so frustrating is that it's always changing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the kids aren't on the Facebook and they've moved over here and they're on Snapchat. Oh, no, they're now they're on TikTok. And where are they going next? How do you plan for something that is, you know, a, a market that is so fickle? Our team loves that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we love being on the pulse of what's next, what's coming, what's changing. It's just naturally, I think, why we start, we entered this career to begin with and what keeps getting us out of bed every day is the, that change is constant. That said, we love helping our clients stay on trends, stay ahead of, because we know how busy they are. We know how much is being asked of them. And we know that if we can come to the table and keep them informed and keep them trained and keep them at the forefront of what's happening, that we're doing a good job for them. Mm-hmm. So I think our team gets a lot of pride in sitting alongside our clients and bringing them on the journey with us. And I mean, I'm not always plugged into these conversations. My team will be the first to tell you that I, they know a lot more about social and what's happening in culture than I do. But I think one thing that we share is just being able to see a trend and being able to coach and navigate our clients through whether or not that's right for them, whether or not that's going to impact their business. And they, you start to see them get excited about change, get excited about asking about the new platform that's coming. And sometimes we'll be the first to tell them and they'll go home and they'll talk to their kids and they'll go over the holidays and talk to their family and they'll come back and they'll be beaming because they brought something new to those conversations mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a really fun part about our jobs. Should most brands, most businesses be on every platform or are you better off picking a place? I think it comes back to those goals and objectives. I don't believe that every brand should be everywhere, just like not every business should be everything to everybody. 
But I do think that omni-channel and having multiple ways for different audiences to engage with you is really important. Mm -hmm. Now, what do your resources look like? What are your budgets? How do you best put your money where you're going to get the best investment? When I'm sitting across from a client, I want to make a decision as if that was my business. So looking at the return of what is this going to mean for us today? What is this going to mean for us in the long term? And helping them come up with a plan that meets both of those needs, Mm -hmm. as well as the consumer with where the consumer is at. Because of social and it's kind of broken down this barrier, I think, you know, we are in this time where businesses feel like they not only have an opportunity, but sort of an obligation to to take a stand, to get more personal, to, you know, to, to, to go beyond their product. How do you help them navigate that? How personal should they get? How deep should they go? Yeah, I think what you're talking about right now is really important. It's the humanization of a brand. Mm -hmm. Where does this brand fit into our lives as a consumer? What is the value that it brings to us? And how do I want that brand to engage with me and to, to stand alongside me throughout the different phases of my life? It varies company to company. And we're working with big clients. And within their portfolios, it varies brand to brand, even on whether different cultural events or hot topics should be part of their strategies. So, you know, I don't think there's a one size fits all or there's a blanket statement that all of our clients could put out when it comes to uh, taking a stand. But there are certain clients that that's really important to their mission and vision as a company. It's really important to their consumer, and we'll absolutely lean into that with them. And there are other clients that have a different approach. And for us, it's not our determination to convince them otherwise. I think it's our job to do right by their business Mm -hmm. and to come up with strategies and ideas that will help them get to where they want to go. Who do you think is doing it really well? And I guess you should tell us if it's a client of yours. But I, but I mean, you know, who, I, to me, it's sort of like a brand where you are, you know, their messaging makes you smile or gets you excited beyond just feeling like they're just trying to sell me something. I mean, in light of this week, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite entrepreneurs of all time is Yvonne Chouinard mm-hmm. from Patagonia. They were probably the first brand to take a stand in their efforts toward climate change, toward funding environmental organizations. I mean, aside from the branding and the marketing as an entrepreneur, his book, Let My People Go Surfing, is one of my favorites. And just he saw business from a point of doing good because that's what he knew. Mm-hmm. He was not a you know, traditional business Right, not school. driven by money. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I look at what he, the move he made this week in giving his company away, mm-hmm. wow, that mm-hmm. is, that's a powerful statement for the future entrepreneurs of us. Right. Of, there's different ways to go about this. And I think that's what he showed with his business to consumers through the Patagonia brand is it's it's okay for us to to do good and to do well mm-hmm. as an organization. Do you I mean that that's an extreme example not a lot of companies can can follow <laughs> that model for lots of reasons but um and I think it's also difficult to reverse engineer it. I mean that's who he was and mm-hmm. core to his mission the whole time. Do you advise most CEOs that they should be out there 
Do you think that most business leaders should be on Twitter? Or are they better off just shutting up and staying offline? You know, if they have something to say and they want to say it, I think social media is an amazing and incredible platform for reaching people that you may not have the ability to reach. And so absolutely, if they are excited and they see the value and they want to invest the time and energy, 100% they should be on social. If it's going to constantly be pushing them to do something they're uncomfortable with or convincing, it's not worth it. We're all representative of our companies in different ways. Typically at organizations where maybe it's not the CEO, but maybe it's the chief sustainability officer. Hmm. Maybe it's the chief brand officer. Maybe it's the employees. Employee advocacy on social media is incredibly powerful right now in terms of people changing jobs, people hiring right now. So sometimes it's not just about one silver bullet. I think it's about what is the surface area of the message that we want to send. And if people are motivated and excited about engaging, then I would go there first. Mm -hmm. I know you talk these days about future-proofing your business, which is particularly (laughs) interesting in your industry, which is constantly changing. What does that mean? I mean, I think it is embracing change. You know, I I mentioned we just came off of an executive retreat and we're preparing for a company retreat where we're actually evolving our vision, mission, and values as a company. And as a founder, oh, man, you really want to hold on to, like, we've done this work before and when, you know, we, we have a vision and mission and values, but we embrace change at the Socialites. And the company that got us to where we are today and the company that we're building for the future, our DNA is the same, but we're going to be different. So I think to future-proof a social agency is to, to stay open to change, to embrace it. We believe the future is better. I think there's a lot of people that want to go back after COVID. Wait, when we just go back mm. to doing things the way we did, mm-hmm. we're never going back. And we're actually really excited about that because we know that there's a lot of discussion and debate around, is social media good for people? There's a dark side of social. Uh, that we talk about at the socialites. That's real. Mm -hmm. Burnout is real. Being plugged in all the time is real. The politicization, um, polarization, I guess you could say, on social is very real and concerning. We want to help make it for the better for our brands, for people, for consumers, for our team and their careers. And so I think if you have that mindset that change is okay and we're going to evolve and change as a company with that, we're going to stay open to what's next. We're going to be curious and we're going to keep learning that you're going to have the right mindset for whatever happens next. Yeah. Congratulations <laughs> on all the success we'll be watching. That's Thank for sure. You. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Such a great story. Amazing what Emily has built in such a short time to think about how media and social media has changed in the time that she has been out of school. Well, for more perspective to broaden it out, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, where John McVeigh teaches entrepreneurial strategy and feels very justified in what he does by hearing Emily's story. John, did you have Emily in class? Oh my goodness, this brought such a smile to my face hearing this story. It just exemplifies everything we try to do. Not that 
we're claiming uh, uh, to, to have caused Emily's success. But I remember Emily, she, 15 years ago, she was always a smart, super driven, bright student and a, a pleasure to have in the classroom. But oh my God, to hear her now speak with such maturity and um, such sort of philosophical thought about her own leadership mm -hmm. and her own nuanced thoughts about strategy and um, social, you know, in, in the in the social media sector, and have forty three employees from scratch. Oh, just fantastic interview! It made my day. Well, it made my day too. It's really incredible to hear what she's built, and I do feel like you and I have talked about this several times. It comes up with many of our guests. Can you teach entrepreneurship? Emily's story seems to be a testament to the fact that you can. Well, you know, I, I just want to capture your interview uh, with Emily like a lightning bug in a jar <laughs> and just send it by mail to Dick Schultz, who, you know, is one of the biggest supporters for uh, entrepreneurship in the Twin Cities. And he's really, you know, one of our big supporters at St. Thomas. And it just exemplifies everything that he, you know, he's tried to do with our with our program, um, you know, Dick himself um, did not study to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Dick did it the hard way, and you know, there have been times where he's really pushes us to say, you know, can you teach this stuff? Can you teach this stuff, or is it just inherent? I think her story just shows how, yes, entrepreneurship's not created through education. But it can be molded. It can be directed um, in an exciting way mm -hmm. if people already have those, the, you know, the, the the skills and the talents and the and the and the and the interest. Right. And I, I I think one of the things that we're really excited about is her story. Hopefully, she just really educates smart students and, in particular, parents that entrepreneurship's not only a viable career to study at college. But it's also an exciting and a noble one, one that you really do make an impact on our world and, and employ people and make things better. Hmm. And it's a really great choice in time. The last thing I think that this really brings is the story of entrepreneurship as an important force in creating opportunity for outsiders. And, and you know, Emily might not particularly sound at first glance as an outsider or, you know, a disadvantaged or marginalized. But I can tell you, as a young woman in a business class coming up with an idea of her own that she was going to enter a market she knew nothing about and she was going to transform that market, everybody told her, no way, you're crazy. Really? There's no, you, you can't do this. Yes, she was, everybody, you know, and as a young woman on her own and her partner being another young woman, to see them determinately just go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. And take on these agencies that, uh, you know, were sort of patronizing towards them and to win is just fantastic. And it just shows this is another important aspect that I know Dick loves of, of entrepreneurship, you know, taking the giving opportunity to those who are really sort of outsiders yeah. and who are not coming in and, and, and opening a door for them. And that's something we're also pretty proud of. Very interesting to know that. And, and what a great example of disruption and, and how she yes. did it with fresh eyes. Well, thank you, John, for the perspective, and thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. We really appreciate it.
Well, if you like what you heard, take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show. And if you want to know more, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find all of our past episodes and conversations with professors as well. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Music